0: Well, good morning. It's once again a great opportunity to be together and to uh, worship our Lord together on this special day. I do want to say uh, this morning before we go to prayer, I want to say a happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there who uh, today is a very special day, obviously, on at least our Hallmark calendar as we get to celebrate our moms. And so I hope you have uh, been able to do that with your uh, mom this morning, whether uh, you were able to call them or not. I know some of our mothers have already uh, passed on, but we are all thankful for them and we're grateful for this day. So I'll just say to all of you, happy happy Mother's Day as we start our day this morning. Would you, uh, as we begin our time, would you just bow with me for a word of prayer as we uh, begin our time today? Father, we thank you once again for this Opportunity to uh, be together, to open your word together, to study together uh, These are really unprecedented times that we are in. These are awkward times really in our for our mental abilities they're they're just weird, odd ways in which we are being called to live right now by your sovereign hand and your providence. Lord, we know that uh, the circumstances we are in are a challenge to the world around us, for the world fears so many different things, and this only brings greater fear upon them. But us as your children need not fear anything, for you are our God. And you have set a day for us to be born and a day for us to die. And whatever that is, however long that is, Lord, we just rejoice in you for whatever Uh, this life would bring that we might be able to share the gospel with others and bring the life giving truth of the gospel as you have given it to us. And so we thank you for this time, even as odd as it is, we thank you that we can be together even through this technology and be able to worship together. And we long for the day when we will be back together here on this earth, but we truly long for the day and live for the day When we will be with you in the glories of heaven forever, where no disease, no effects of sin could ever come upon us. And so we long for that with a great, great longing. And so, Lord, this morning, as we open your word, as we look to the truth, may it affect our lives and our hearts, cause our thinking to be challenged, help us to to really be evaluatory of our own hearts and our own lives as we think through these things for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your glory, for the love of one another, and that the world might see in us the genuineness of Jesus Christ and his attitude and the likeness of Christ as it is lived out in us, that they too might know you and might repent of sin and come to know Christ by faith. So thank you for this. We ask your blessing upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to our study of Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Of course, as you remember, over the past several weeks, we have looked intently at what is before us here in just really the first verse as it has exploded to us off the page, as the Apostle Paul has begun to teach on the subject of how we are to live really with one another when it comes to areas of life in which the Bible remains specifically silent. Uh, of course, we understand there are general principles for us without the Within the scriptures that come to play in any decision that we make when it comes to our lives as Christians, there are general principles that we bring to bear upon each and every subject in each and every situation. And when it comes to those decisions for which there are no specific prohibitions given to us in scripture, oftentimes, if we're not careful, we can get ourselves into trouble. And Even with greater difficulty, we can cause trouble within the body of Jesus Christ, within the church, if we are not responding as God would have us respond to each other. This is the family. This is the family of God. This is the local congregation, the body of Christ, and we are individuals, yet we are one together, and we don't want to do anything, at least purposefully, that would cause harm to the body. And oftentimes, if we're not responding rightly to these things, it will cause harm to the body. And so this was what was on the Apostle Paul's mind as he's dealing with it in chapter 14. These gray areas of life, these activities and decisions that are not necessarily sinful for us to do, but have the potential to be trouble if we are not living as we ought to live. Now, we, we've already been given in verse 1 the general principle that we should have as a guide for how we are to act with one another in these kinds of things. Uh, Verse 1 clearly tells us that we all have a responsibility, a duty, really, to respond rightly to our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He says, now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, That's the principle, the idea that we all have a responsibility to one another to really guard one another and think about one another and think about the difficulties that others may have with how we live or the difficulties we may be having with how others are living. And so having laid out the principle that Paul is dealing with, he then begins to apply it to the Christians to whom he is writing, the Christians in Rome, regarding this whole question about eating particular foods. This is really what he's addressing here in the following verses. Now, I want to pause for a moment and and just remind us as we begin, and really also caution us, not to come to conclusions about gray area issues too quickly. Sometimes that's really the problem in our own heart. We we jump to conclusions or we we come to these conclusions about gray areas rather quickly. And I I truly believe that part of the trouble that takes place within any given congregation throughout evangelicalism that happens between Christian brother, Christian sister, sister to brother, brother to brother, sister to sister, is simply because those who are involved in the matter draw conclusions on the issue and about the person involved in the issue long before they ever should draw a conclusion. For example... We think about it in a practical sense as if it's a law court. You think about a law court even in our day and age. It's a real travesty of justice or a travesty of real thinking if the judge or the jury, if it's a jury child, makes a decision about the case at the very beginning of the case. Before they ever hear any substantiating testimony, that would be a travesty of justice to, to just disregard testimony altogether, disregard facts altogether and make a judgment about it ahead of time. That would be something very, very wrong. And so we cannot be, as one commentator put it as I was reading this week, we cannot be ready reckoners, they said. Ready reckoners, that is, those people who make... Uh, or who come to an immediate answer, an immediate conclusion about something before we hear all the details. And so when it comes to the gray area issues, as we're dealing with here in Romans chapter 14, when it comes to these areas within our own Christian living, we must not be those people who jump to conclusions. Cannot do that. That is a danger. We have to guard against that. And so I I caution us with that just to have that as a backdrop in our minds as we look at this passage and as we think about the the implications of this within our day and age. And so have that as a warning, have that as a backdrop in your mind as we begin to look at this first area that Paul deals with in the Roman church that deals with food. Notice what he says here in verse 2. It says, "...one man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only." So this is about food. He's speaking to the Christians in Rome. It's about the issue that that they were having difficulty with, this gray issue of life. And Paul mentions the word drink a bit later in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, he's talking about just eating, uh, simply nourishing oneself physically, which pertains to both, whatever you eat, whatever you drink and he also mentions drinking in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything. And then he puts that little phraseology at the end of that, because we would do all kinds of things with those first words if we were to just have those. Thankfully, Paul didn't end it by that. He puts that prepositional phrase, by which your brother stumbles. So he's not giving a prohibition to eating or prohibition to drinking these kinds of things. He's just simply saying, listen, there's a prohibition here, but it has nothing to do with the item itself. It has to do with others outside of the item. In other words, anything for which there is no direct command or prohibition in the New Testament. And there are plenty, as we know, as you read through the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament, there are plenty of things that we are to do and things that we are not to do. The Bible gives us clear commands on those. Those are indisputable things. We are not, as the Old Testament even says, to worship some other god. And so it's indisputable. But we're not talking about those. We're talking about Christian freedoms, gray areas, things that we can do, Christian freedoms that we might engage in. But also, those Christian freedoms have the potential to be offensive. They have the potential to cause offense to other Christians. And Paul really boils it down. He boils down the entire argument, if you will, uh, in verse 20, when he says in verse 20, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, But notice they are evil for the man who eats and it gives offense. So that's the whole argument, really. Don't tear down the work of God because you have a desire to exercise some kind of Christian freedom. So back in verse 2, then, we have a scenario being developed that Paul is dealing with. The weaker brother eats no meat he only eats vegetables. Now, remember, the issue isn't the problem. The issue of whether I eat meat or whether I don't eat meat, that's not the problem. The issue is what happens with us in light of the issue. It doesn't matter what it is. And that's why I'm not getting specific as to what gray issues we must deal with or should not deal with. Some have asked me to get specific as I've walked through these just these couple of verses, and I hesitate to do that because this is what happens when preachers preach. People say, well, the preacher said it's wrong, and so therefore it must be wrong. And I, I, I hesitate to do any of that because the point here is the same with any issue. It doesn't matter what the gray issue is. It's the same and that's what we need to deal with. We need to deal with how we are to respond when it comes to gray area issues. It doesn't matter what specifically that gray area issue is. So what is it that was on the mind of Paul as he was teaching this issue to those who were in Rome, as he was writing to these first century Christians? and And remember that Paul is speaking to those who are part of a church. This is for christians we've we 've dealt with how to deal with those outside the church in the previous chapter, how to deal with uh, both those in the church and how to have that Christian relationship with those outside the church and particularly in in, in light of authority over us we we've seen what our attitude is to be there now we 're inside the church he 's dealing with Christians. And so these are Christians in the church. And the church in Rome included both Jews and Gentiles. Jews who had become genuine believers and Gentiles who had also been saved. And so their church is just like our church. There were people who had come from all kinds of different backgrounds who had gotten saved out of different lifestyles. And their Christian lives, just like ours, their Christian lives, were affected by what they were prior to their salvation. In other words, you and I, just like them, we all bring past parts of our past life with us when we are brought into the Christian family. You can't escape your history. You can't escape in the sense of your mental understanding and your mental doing of that history. You can put off the deeds of the flesh, but but you can't escape the remembrance of them, the reminder of them. That's part of the, the reason why we long for heaven so much, so that we can be done away with all of that kind of baggage. So they're just like us. We come with all kinds of things. Christian Jews... Had problems with different things than Gentile Christians had problems with. Every Jew was raised to think that certain kinds of foods were specifically prohibited. The ceremonial law of the Old Testament that was steeped and taught to them every day and ingrained into their minds through the teaching of the synagogue was right there. Some foods were never to be eaten. Remember you saw in acts peter Peter still had that problem until Acts chapter ten when God sent the sheet down and said, "Everything is clean." That's why Peter would go then to the Gentiles. Some foods were never to be eaten. The Old Testament ceremonial law had said some foods were good, but only on certain special days, certain special feast times you could have those things, and on those days. No meat was to be eaten. could not have meat at all. And so that was some of the background and the baggage that some Jewish Christians brought. And even though these Jews were now saved by faith in Jesus Christ, that they were free in Christ, they're still being troubled by their failure or by the failure of some people, some Christians among them who, who didn't apply certain rules to their lives that they were applying to theirs but but then on the other side you had so you had the Jews on one side then on the other side there were those in the church who had been saved out of strictly pagan lifestyles they weren't under the religious system of the Old Testament at all. They didn't they didn't have anything to do with the ceremonial law. They were just pagans in their lives. It was their custom to go to pagan temples. It was their custom to participate in the rituals of paganism. They offered meat, sacrificed to false gods. After it was sacrificed, guess what they did? They went and that meat was then sold in the public marketplace, like going to the ancient farmer's market, and you'd buy the meat from the local guy, and that meat came from the out of the back of the pagan temple that was offered to the sacrifice. And many of the Jews believed that it wasn't right to eat that meat. Why? Because it had been associated with idolatry. It had been associated with worshiping something that wasn't God at all, and so they were abstaining from meat. And even among even the Gentile, even among some of the non-Jewish believers, even some of them had varying views on meat offered to idols. Some of them wouldn't eat the meat because they thought that it that if they did eat the meat, then they were in somehow some way participating in some kind of way with the worship of that idol from which they'd been freed from by way of salvation in Christ. And so not knowing where that meat might have come from, they just decided not to eat any kind of meat. And so Paul describes them here as weak, who eat vegetables only. Now the word he uses there in verse 2 is a generic term, the word for vegetables. It's really the word for herbs. And so he's speaking to those who are uh people who don't eat meat, but not necessarily vegetarians as a group. We hear that term a lot today, vegetarians. Some people are vegetarians for a lot of different various reasons. And some people may be vegetarians for specifically just health reasons. It's because their body in some kind of way has has some kind of uh, need for just that. It can't tolerate meat. Uh, but that's not what's being identified here. It's not, he's not identifying people who do it for, for those kinds of reasons. Paul is speaking about what I believe what is described in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to take us over there for a moment just so that we can see this. First Timothy chapter 4. Because Paul is writing to Timothy about the ministry of the gospel, right? Paul is about to uh, end his ministry. God has taken him through the process of his ministry. He's now uh, about to be executed in Rome at some point, at least he's on trial there. And he's writing to Timothy these final letters here, these two pastoral uh, letters as Paul passes on the ministry. And so he's... He's speaking to Timothy about how to carry on the ministry, how to carry on the ministry and the gospel ministry in these churches. And beginning in verse 6, Paul begins to lay that out. But I want to read from verse 1 just to kind of set the context. Paul says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For if it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer, in pointing out these things, brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only for little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come." Now, you notice in verse 8, by the way, Paul uses the term bodily exercise or bodily discipline. He's not talking about physical exercise. Like we go out walking and we go out running and do things to, to physically do things for our body. Now, in the context of this passage, he's talking about the overemphasis on the physical as the means of identifying your spiritual maturity. In other words, the outward activity of life is the identifier for my spirituality my salvation, if you will. Paul's saying don't overemphasize the outward when it's the internal godliness that is profitable for all things. In other words, those who were refusing to marry, refusing to see people get married, or refusing to eat certain foods, were overemphasizing the physical. They were overemphasizing the outward as an identifier for spirituality. They had been deceived. They were following after deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons that came by means of liars. The hypocrisy of liars, that just simply means these people were saying, don't do this, even though they were involved in it. Why? Because their conscience was seared and they were forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods. They're saying the outward is the way to show your spiritual maturity. Don't do that. And yet all of that is, all of that is not to be used as a determiner of anything. What's profitable is godliness, internal quality, an internal quality which expresses itself in the outward realities of the character of Jesus Christ. This is what is happening. This is what Paul is dealing with. And so when you hear Paul address back in Romans chapter 14, we can go back there now. When Paul addresses those who eat no meat at all there in Romans 14, he's speaking about doing that as a spiritual identifier. He's not just speaking about somebody who eats only vegetables because of health reasons and they're a vegetarian and he's saying that's wrong. No, he's not saying that. He's saying those who eat like they eat, who do those very kind of things, who are abstaining from meat because that is their spiritual identifier. They're identifying themselves as some sense of spirituality by that outward activity. In other words, someone thinking in their heart, I'm spiritually mature, because I don't eat meat. Or I'm spiritually mature because I do this or don't do that. This is where the real problem lies when it comes to the gray areas within the Christian realm, within the Christian community. If we make something obligatory, if we make something an absolute, if we begin to think and if we even begin to say that someone isn't a Christian, Unless they do certain things, someone isn't spiritually mature, someone isn't spiritually getting it, unless they do certain things and do it like we're doing it, then we are like those that Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be a problem in the church. We're going to have real difficulty when it comes to living with others in the church. So the argument being made here in Romans 14 is that there is a difference between each and every one of us when it comes to living out our Christian faith, living out our understanding of our Christian faith. That doesn't mean that any one of us got it all wired. We're all in a process. We're all growing. We're all being sanctified, but we're all in a different place. Some are strong in their understanding of what salvation means and how they can live in certain areas. And at times, even those who are strong and those who think they're strong are actually weak in their faith in understanding of how we can live. And the situation described here in Romans chapter 14, the strong in the faith understood that eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol was no issue. Why? Because there really is no such thing as a real false god. False gods are just that. They're false. They're, they're idols. They're not real. There's only one real God. And that's the one who saved us. It's the one we heard all about that in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when they were doing all kinds of things based upon a spiritual attainment, an obligatory outward act. Since there are no other gods, even pagans go and give offering to the idol. It doesn't do anything to the offering. So the stronger Christian is perfectly okay with eating. They didn't have any issue. But the weak in the faith Christian didn't eat the meat at all. Say, why? Why? Well, possibly because they had a doubt about the whole issue. Probably they were fearful of doing something wrong, fearful in a right sense of violating in their relationship with God. They just don't want to do anything that they might be do wrong. They're fearful of doing something that might be sinful. And so if they just stay away from all meat, they would never have any problem. You see, if I, just, if I just stay away from it altogether, then I know that I'm not going to have any issue with potential sin. And so they become those who only eat vegetables. But they're doing it for purely religious reasons. They're doing it because they think that in not doing it, they're then righteous. And therefore, in many ways, they had become like the Pharisees. They were, the Pharisees, you remember, were shocked. They were absolutely incensed and shocked that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. I can't believe he would do that. How dare he violate the outward activity in order to heal someone in need? They were shocked at that. The Pharisees had no place for that. They would never do that. They were like those that Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 4. They were hypocrisy. It was the hypocrisy of liars because even they did things on the Sabbath that they would tell others they could not do. They were shocked that the disciples would walk through the field's on any given day, especially on a Sabbath day, and actually pluck the grains of head or the, or the heads of grain as they walked through the field. They were incensed at that. For them, everything that you did, every outward activity defined your spirituality. It defined whether you had a relationship with God or whether you didn't. So in their mind, Jesus couldn't be a righteous person. No, just look at what He does. Look at his outward activity. He couldn't be righteous. Look at what he allows. Look at what he lets his disciples do. Look at what he's willing to do. Look who he's willing to have dinner with. Can't believe he's in that house with those sinners. And so this is is the real issue. One man has faith that he might eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. That's that's the side's. And so here in verse 3, the Apostle Paul gives us two main dangers that come with this kind of thinking. Two main dangers that come with this kind of thinking that he's just described for us in verse 2. Danger number one is for the strong Christian. Danger number two is for the weak Christian. And here they are. I'll just list them for you, and then we'll talk quickly about them. Danger number one is this. The danger for strong Christians is to despise weaker Christians. To despise weaker Christians. And the danger for the weak Christian is to wrongly judge stronger Christians. Now, this morning, I want to spend most of our time on the second of these because we, we've we somewhat dealt with the first one in some ways last time when we looked at the negative side of verse 1, right? The one who is... We are to accept the one who's weak in the faith. Of course, he's speaking to those who are strong in the faith, of which we all assume we are. We're to accept the weak in the faith, but not for the passing of judgment on his opinions. And we spoke about that last time. Paul's reemphasizing that in verse three. And you remember last time that we said that it's easy for the strong in the faith person in the exercise of Christian liberties. It's easy. For us to aggravate the struggle of a weaker in the faith Christian. It's easy for us to do that. Uh, One way for us to do that is we just continually raise the issue with them. We continually bring it up. Uh, We're seeking to have a discussion with them about it in, in ways that are very insensitive to their conscience. In other words, you know somebody struggles with what you're doing by way of your own Christian freedom. Maybe, maybe it's with the kind of movies you watch. Maybe, it's, uh, what, maybe it is the kind of food you eat. Maybe it is the kind of drink you drink. Maybe it is the kind of uh, car you drive or whatever it is. And instead of being sensitive to them in that way, you continue to encourage them to just stop worrying about it. Just stop worrying about it. After all, we have Christian freedom. We're free in Christ. I can't believe you would think like that. I can't believe you're still thinking like that. The Bible says don't do that, right? If you know that some activity of yours is a problem for other Christians, then don't go around bringing it up. Don't go around flaunting it so that every time they see you or desire to be with you, they're going to have to open up that. They're going to have to pull the scab off their heart again aggravate the struggle. No, Do they need to grow? Do they need to have their conscience bound to the truth? Do they need to, to mature up in their conscience and not have an oversensitive conscience? Yes, sure. Yes, we need to all be growing. And yet it's not our responsibility if we're a stronger Christian to aggravate that all the time. And yet it's easy to do that. It's easy to do that because we continually beat them with our clear opinions on the issue. We're clear on it. We don't have any issue with the exercise of a freedom in whatever area it is. And so we just continually try to ensure that they see just how wrong their thinking is about it. Listen, beloved, listen. Having an intellectual understanding of a Christian freedom is a great thing. Having our our understanding settled, having our understanding where it needs to be by way of any kind of Christian freedom is a great thing to have. But if we are not careful with those things, it's easy for us to have arrogance. Intellectual understanding has a product if we're not careful. And that product is prideful arrogance. The danger then for us is to begin to despise. That's what Paul says here. Let him who, not him, let him who eats, let him not regard with contempt. That's despise him. Let him not despise the one who does not eat. If we have an intellectual understanding, our danger is intellectual pride. Arrogance in ourselves that causes despising others who don't have the same understanding. Simple intellectual pride. That's all that is. and That's sin. That's clearly sin. And it's a sin that is crouching. It is a sin that is ready to pounce on anyone who has intellectual understanding about Christian freedoms. Listen, if you're one who has a right intellectual understanding of your salvation and Christian freedoms, be careful. Be very careful. Because sin is crouching at the door, ready to pounce. Sinful pride is right there, ready to open the door so that you despise anybody else who doesn't look at freedoms the same way you do. It's easy to begin to despise others who do not have our understanding. So that's the first danger. And like I said, we we dealt with some of that last time. So you can go and listen to last week's message to just kind of fill in your, your remembrance of that. But the second side is just as troublesome in the church. That's just as troublesome. The danger for weak Christians to wrongly judge stronger Christians. Notice in verse 3, it says, Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Now, as you first read this and you think about this and you think about freedoms, you think about Christian freedoms, you think about these gray area issues, when you first think about this, you'd think it would be the other way around. You would think that it would be the strong in the faith, those who have a an understanding of Christian freedoms, who, who have this... Uh, idea in their heart and mind, their conscience bound to the truth that they can do these things that we're free in Christ. You'd think that them, that it would be them who would judge the weaker. But That's not actually what it says. The opposite is true. The tendency of the strong, Paul says, is to despise, right? The, the, the tendency to try to get every person on their level. That's the strong's problem. All right, I just want to get them on my level. If I don't get them on my level of understanding, then my freedoms are going to be hindered. I won't be able to exercise the freedoms that I so rightly should have to be able to exercise and freely be able to exercise. Why should I have to go and forego my freedoms for a person who just needs to mature up, a person who just needs to get a little more understanding? That's despising others. That's not the trouble with the weak in the faith. The weak in the faith are tempted to judge others. And by judge, Paul's not saying to, that they judge their... The, what Paul is saying is that you judge their spirituality based upon your view. In other words, whether they are Christians or not... In other words, because the stronger eating the kinds of meat, this is what Paul's dealing with, right? Those who eat meat, those who don't eat meat. Because they do eat meat, you who do not eat meat are judging them. You're, You're making a spiritual evaluation about them as to whether they're saved or not, because if they were, they certainly wouldn't be doing that. You notice how the stronger in the faith don't make that kind of determination. You see, if you're thinking about your own self and where on the plane of weak and strong you might be, and you say, well, I'm a strong Christian, and yet you say to yourself, but I've done that, I've judged other people's spirituality based upon how they're living by way of things that aren't clear prohibitions in Scripture, then maybe your evaluation of yourself isn't in the right place, because it's the weaker in the faith that are tempted to make spiritual judgments about others. They go so far as to make the final judgment about them. They can't be saved if they're doing that. Or at least at the very least, they're living in sin. And if they're happy about living that way, then they probably aren't saved at all. And so you have to ask yourself, have I ever been like that? Have I thought like that? about other Christian brothers and sisters. Have you ever made a spiritual determination about the faith of another because they exercise the Christian liberty that you were not comfortable with? You see, if you have, Paul says, that's not the sign of a strong believer. That's the characteristic of a weak in the faith Christian. And you say, well, why does that happen? Why does that happen? Well, I think the biggest underlying factor is fear. 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 We see it all over the world today. This whole COVID-19 reality and issue in life has just brought out in nth degree the fear of humanity. I mean, most of the... (sighs) most of the rules that we have in our society as to this whole issue of the COVID-19 reality is all based on fear. Man's fear of death. Man hates to die. He doesn't want to die. He tries to hide death. The marching of death is coming and coming and coming. People die all the time. We're not celebrating the death of any human within our world or within our day and age or within our own communities. But the reality is people die all the time. And yet fear seems to run the day. And this is what happens with those who are weak in the faith. They're fearful. Weak the faith person isn't quite settled on an issue. They don't quite have their full understanding on the issue because of the uncertainty in their own minds and they want and they need in order to live without anxiety, in order to live without fear. They guard their position to ensure they are living rightly. They guard the little fiefdom that they are in or their little kingdom that they're living in and they guard it with all everything and they don't want to get outside of that. And because their life is controlled by fear of being wrong, then they create all kinds of rules, all kinds of regulations for their own life, and they ensure to keep anxiousness about being wrong at bay, they ensure they're doing those rules, and since they live by all those rules and regulations for their own life, they begin to impose those on everybody else. And so their list of things that they do or do not do becomes the list that everybody must do or must not do to be spiritually mature. All of that is because of fear. In Romans chapter 14, it's fear that they will sin if they eat meat. They're going to sin if they do that. And so the only safe thing is to eat no meat at all. I'll ensure I'm not sinning if I just stay away from that altogether. Let me just cut it all out of my life. And therefore, anyone who does eat it must be sinning. Or they probably aren't even saved, because Christians certainly wouldn't do that. So the tendency of the weak and the faith person is to become a legalist. What is a true legalist? We hear a lot of things about legalism today and described in the church that really isn't legalism at all. People say, well, gosh, you know, any rule means you're a legalist. Well, God has all kinds of rules. He has all kinds of thus you shall do and thus you shall not do. And if therefore that's how we define legalism, then God's a legalist. But God is not a legalist. God has rules. God has regulations. God has things and ways we are to live. But that doesn't make us legalists. What makes us a legalist is to say that we become righteous by doing those that we are justified by doing those. That's what legalism is. And that's what happens with the weak brother in Christ who says to everybody else, you've got to live by the rules. If you don't keep the rules, then you're not a Christian. In other words, they're judging others, determining other spirituality by what they do, by the actions. You see this all over the New Testament, by the way. Paul taught this throughout. The New Testament epistles, this was what Paul was dealing with constantly. Galatians is all about that reality, right? you You got saved by faith in Christ, and now you want to go back to justification by works. You got saved by faith. It's God who justifies who, who bewitched you. Why do you want to go back to that? Paul says in Galatians. Remember Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas go to the Jerusalem Council because some of the Jews want the Gentiles to be circumcised and do all these kinds of things. And they talk to them, and they get the reality of what really needs to be done. They only lay on them a few different things. Not not in, because that's how you gain spirituality, just simply because those things would help not cause offense in the church. In fact, Colossians 2 speaks to this issue. In fact, Colossians 2, verse 23, Paul says, these things indeed, these outward things, these outward activities, these outward Uh, physical things, have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, humility, and neglect of the body. They, They have this outward thing. They appear to be righteous. They appear to be religious. They appear to be godliness. But they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They don't help you at all. They don't produce any kind of way to have victory in life. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying that you can do all the personal rule making and rule keeping you want, but none of that makes you holy. None of that makes you holy. You are holy because of Christ and only because of Christ. And therefore, because of your holiness in Christ and in Him alone, you desire to live as Christ. Now, I think that has relevance for today, don't you? Do professing Christians actually do that? Do do we live like that? Do we actually do what Paul is describing here, like what was happening in the church in Rome? Do we do that? Well, some might say, well, that that's only what happens in false religions, like like the Catholic Church, right, where outward activity and outward duty and doing all these sacraments and going through all these kinds of things and activities is what makes you holy, these obligations that the church places on you. If you don't do that, you're never going to go to heaven. Some will say that's where we see it most. But the same kind of legalism is seen today in the true church. All kinds of things are advocated as musts if you're going to be a true Christian. Some Some within evangelicalism will say that if you don't homeschool your children, then you really don't care about them. And if you don't homeschool them, then you really don't care about them. And you really don't care about what God commands because you're commanded to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as if that means don't ever use anybody else to help teach them writing, arithmetic, math, any of those kinds of things. And if you don't do that, then you must not be a Christian. At least, at the very least, you're not a very good Christian. I remember growing up in my early years when my dad first got saved, we were in a Baptist church were there for many years when I was a kid, and if someone smoked or drank or dated someone who did those things, then salvation for them was suspect. Ooh, they must not be saved. It used to be an old cliche adage, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. That's ridiculousness. It's foolish. The list goes on and on. How you use your money. Should you take debt? Should you take on debt? Is there a good way to take on debt? Do Christians have debt? Is that good stewardship of their money? Should you have what is considered by some to be luxury items? Should you have those or should you not have those? And some will judge you if you do have those. And oh boy, how come you're spending your money that way? What about taking vaccines? I mean, we hear a lot about vaccines today because of COVID-19 and all this kind of stuff. What if you take vaccines? Should I take vaccines? Should I not have vaccines? What if I do and what if I don't? And is my spirituality judged by that? What about the clothing that I wear? How is modesty today defined medicines? Should I take medicines? Should I not take medicines? I knew, I knew a person in California years ago when I was out there who, has, who thought insurance was against the word of God because you weren't living by faith. You were trusting in some kind of entity outside of your faith. So should you take insurance? What about using birth control? What about quiet times in the family? What if you do a quiet time? What if you don't do a quiet time? What is a quiet time? How can we define quiet time? What is that? What about family worship? Do you do family worship? Do you not have family worship? Should we do it in the morning? How about in the evening? When do we do family worship? What about TV, movies, the computer use, all kinds of other things? And the list goes on and on and on and on. So we have to examine ourselves. Are we guilty of a legalistic attitude? Nothing wrong with rules, but are we using those to evaluate another's ultimate spiritual condition? Paul says, don't judge your brother. Why? Why? Notice what he says in verse, the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Don't judge your brother. Let whom who does not eat not judge him who does. Why? Because God's accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Don't judge him. Why? Because, number one, he's been accepted by God. We saw what that meant. That meant the same thing as in verse 1. Now receive or accept the one who is weak in the faith. Have this welcoming attitude just as God has welcomed you. In other words, his Christianity is not determined by outward things. Stop judging your brother. Stop judging your sister because their Christianity isn't determined by those things. It's determined by God, God alone through Christ, through Christ alone, by faith alone. That's how it's determined. God's accepted him. You accept him. Examine ourselves, right? Don't judge your brother because he's accepted by God, but secondly, because you have no right to judge another man's servant. You have no right to judge another man's servant. Who are you, Paul says in verse 4, to judge the servant of another? In other words, it's like the title of this series that I've been going through over the last few weeks. No one has elevated you to the place of God. No, you have, no one's died. God hasn't died and made you God. You're not their master. So don't make that kind of determination about their life. You're not in a place to do it. God is their master. You don't go into another's house and tell them how to raise their children. This is why we have these discussions when your kids come home and they say, but so-and-so's family gets to do this. And you say, well, that's fine. They they can do that. It's their home. They can make those choices. But in our home, we're going to do this. And you ensure that you teach your children not to despise the other family because they, in their Christian freedom, choose to exercise their freedom in a different way. No one's elevated you to the place of God. So don't judge them. Don't judge them. They're not your servant. And then thirdly, because you don't need to worry about them. Don't judge them because you don't need to worry about them. Don't fear for you or fear for them because our standing and their standing in the Lord is based upon Christ alone and not on their actions. See, you can't make a spiritual determination about them, right? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will. Why? Not because of his actions, not because of what he does or what he does not do, but it's the Lord who's able to make him stand. This is why Paul will say in verse 12, So let each of us know this, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. You see, we're not to we're not to despise, we're not to judge. Not to do those kinds of things. Why? Because it's God who's our master. It's God who's our judge. Should all of us be growing? Yes. Should all of us face, put ourselves in the book and understand the truths of Scripture and apply the general principles to our lives for the sake of all those around us and all those who see us and all those who we live with so that we can encourage and build up the body to a unity of the faith like Ephesians 4 says so that we all come to the place of maturity, of the same mind, and are heading the same direction for the sake of the gospel? Yes, we all ought to be doing that, whether we're strong or weak or whatever place on the spectrum we are in, but we cannot be despising, we cannot be judging one another in their spiritual condition based upon the outward activities in the gray areas of life. It's dangerous. It will hurt the church. You say, wow, wow. This week I was studying this and I said, man, I don't know about... I don't know about the people, Lord, but after studying this, I need to inventory my thoughts. I need to think about my own thoughts. I need to think about my own mind. I need to make some mental changes. I need to do some adjusting. I need to go right back to chapter 12, verse 1, and have my mind renewed so that I'm not suddenly despising others or so that I'm not suddenly judging others based upon what they do, what they do not do. This is where we need to be. This is so rich, so rich, folks. If we understand our salvation at all, and then we understand we did nothing to get ourselves into this. It was by Christ and Christ alone. It was according to God's desires alone. It was him that brought us together. None of us are saved by a mistake. God chose us before the foundation of the world. He granted us faith in Jesus Christ, and He put us together. All of us, from all of our various backgrounds, all of our weirdness of our pre-Christian lives, and we've brought our baggage with us, and we need to start to have that thinking and those thoughts whittled away, pushed aside, and think of one another as Christ would think of us helping one another, growing one another with a heart of humility so that we might become one in Christ together as a body. Maybe it's a great thing that God has done this now. So that right now as we're together but apart, we can inventory our own thoughts and our own minds and think about how We can think differently when God allows us to then come back together. Oh, how much stronger the church is going to be. We we have a great church. We have a wonderful, wonderful church. Really a, a real unified body. But there are places in our collective heart, I'm sure, where we individually have despised and judged one another wrongly for the sake of something that someone was doing. And whether we could say it's right or wrong, and we could bring all kinds of principles, it isn't a prohibited reality of Scripture, and so we can say, like that professor used to say to me, you could do that, but I'm not going to do that. And we think of others more highly than ourselves, and we begin to live out exactly what Paul says in verse 20, don't tear down the work of God for the sake of your food. You write in whatever word you want there. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of homeschooling or for the sake of whatever, whatever idiosyncrasy, whatever issue it is. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of that because all things are indeed clean. But remember, oh, we who like to exercise Christian freedoms, remember they are evil for the man who they are given an offense to. Those who are given an offense, those who take offense at them need to grow. They need to have their conscience not so hyper and bound to Scripture, but we whose consciences are free to do certain things, we need to think of our other brothers and sisters who may stumble. That's why Paul says in verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. You see? You see, if their gray area issues are true Christian freedoms, then those true Christian freedoms aren't held holding us captive. And we're free to give them up for the sake of another. So that they will be able to grow in Christ unhindered, unoffended and not stumbling. Well, I hope that's been helpful. Uh, We're going to get more next time. Paul's transitions to different days beginning in verse 5 and we'll see some of that next time the same simple principles but profound realities of how we are to deal with it. We'll move a little more quickly I think through those verses but but you have the idea. You have the idea. We're all different. We all come to this with baggage. And yet we're all to think rightly about one another so that we can have a strong body. Let's not be God in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning, an opportunity once again to just open your word, to really really have a a thoughtful time together, thinking through our own heart, the own issues of life, what goes on on any given day in the Christian realm, that we might just learn to be like you, Learn to be like you to one another, to love others as you have loved us, to give of ourselves as we have so freely been given to, to think of others on the basis of what you have done with them, not what they do. We're so grateful that you don't determine our spiritual lives by what we do. Certainly, we know that every deed will be judged, but not for the sake of our own attainment, simply for the reality of knowing whether we've honored you or not. Help us to live for today as if it's the day of your coming. Help us to live with that consciousness in our minds and hearts, not wanting to do anything by which we might shrink back in shame. And help us look to one another, to guard the conscience of one another, to help one another walk circumspectly for the right reasons, not so that we could judge each other's spirituality, but so that we could help one another grow in maturity in the right way. Lord, it's all about the gospel. It's all about your glory. Help us to live in that way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.